Are you ready to start a new series? I'm ready to start a new series. In fact, I'll just tell you right now, I'm going to talk a little bit before I read the scripture, but you can begin to find the book of Habakkuk. It's one of those minor prophets that if you're using the old school Bible, it'll take you about 15 minutes to find Habakkuk. But if you have your technology, you'll get there a little bit faster. But we're going to be reading out of Habakkuk chapter 3 because we're starting our next I Love series. I told you that all this year we're going to be talking about the things that God loves. And we started out with, you know, uh, and, you know, I just went blank. What was our, I love my Bible. I'm getting old. I love my Bible was our last series. This series we've entitled, I love revival. I hope you love revival. If not, after this series, I'm believing you're going to love the thought of God sending a revival. The question may arise as to why revival? Why even put that into the I Love series that will be taking place in 2017? Why teach about revival? I mean, how relevant or personally important is revival anyway? Because the fact of the matter is, in a postmodern culture, and postmodernism has affected the church as well, our first question whenever something comes our way is this, what does it have to do with me? Isn't that really what most of us say? What does this have to do with me? Because we all know that we are the center of the universe. What does it have to do with me? How does this help me? What do I get out of this? And we begin to ask all those, these questions. And that's why it's hard to teach about revival because by and large, the church no longer, uh, 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 challenges its, its congregants in order to aspire to selfless things. But we try to find ways with which we can market it and let them know that this is all about you. And that's something that revival actually changes when it comes. We begin to be adjusted so we understand that it's really not so much about us, but it's all about him. And the answer to the question of why I teach about revival, and I put a couple of things down here. The easiest answer is God wants his people to be all that they were designed to be. And revival is an important part of a believer's journey for you to be what God wants you to be. That's the easiest answer. The second answer is linked, I think, to the stirrings of the Lord. During our 21-day fast, God began to just stir through our prayer and our, our Friday night praying and, and the fasting that took place. And I, I'm not suggesting, I, I'm hesitant as you will see why in a moment, I, I'm not suggesting that we're necessarily on the brink of revival, but it certainly opens up that possibility. It certainly causes me to hunger and thirst for that possibility. And I know that unless these things first take place, we'll never see revival. And then the last answer as to why we might be looking into this was an invitation that I recently received, I believe, providentially. I don't know if you've ever had your phone ring and there was someone on the other end of the line that you don't know how they got your number and you don't know how they found you. And the conversation that begins to ensue is really sort of interesting and providential. And the only way you can explain it is that God was a part of it. I got one of those type phone calls a few weeks ago from a gentleman by the name of Reverend Doug Small. 
Now, I, I don't know exactly, so I, if I have to amend sort of his responsibilities or titles, I will, I will gladly do that because he's a gentleman I, that I met some years ago just, just briefly at a meeting. Uh, he certainly would not have remembered me. Uh, we didn't exchange cards or anything like that. But, you know, through a friend of a friend of a friend, my name came to him and he called me. He is, he is the denominational director of the Church of God for prayer. So, so, you know, we're meeting here at the Church of God, and so the denomination of the Church of God has someone uh, that's the head of prayer, and he's the one. And he called me up, and he said, your name was given to me because he said they, they thought you might have some historical knowledge concerning a little-known but extremely important Charleston revival that happened in 1857. It's known as the Anson Street Revival. Now, I'm going to tell you the story of the Anson Street Revival at the conclusion. When I conclude the message, I'll conclude it by telling you the story of the Anson Street Revival. But Reverend Small on this telephone, uh, uh, obviously uh, a, a smart, intelligent guy, has a heart for revival, a, a heart for prayer. He began to quiz me over the phone. I'm just, in fact, I was just in the car headed down the road visiting with him. And he was quizzing me about my knowledge of the revival. And apparently I passed the test. Because he asked me in about three weeks now, it was, it was a long time ago, but now we're about three weeks away. He asked me to join him and about 20 various denominational leaders of other denominations. And we're not talking the Church of God. We're talking 20 leaders of different denominations and, and he wants to gather at the corner of Anson Street in Calhoun. And he says, I want you to tell them the story of the revival. And then I want you to lead them in prayer down there on that corner. Well, literally, I suspect, be standing right there at the Galliard Auditorium. I was told that these leaders represent hundreds, maybe, maybe thousands could be used, of local churches and tens of thousands of believers. And Reverend Small, uh, his ministry is that he wanted to gather these people together to seed inside of them a revival hunger amongst, well, first, obviously, the church of God, because that's where he serves, but in particular, the whole body of Christ. And, uh, and so all of this sort of coalesced together. You know, we started talking about revival, then, then this phone call begins to take place, and and so I'll let you know when that happens and you can be praying for pastor that I don't forget all the details there on the corner of Anson and Calhoun. But we're going to be gathering there to talk about and share about Charleston's revival heritage. And on that street corner, we're going to be calling out to God for revival today. So I'm here to tell you that, that revival, we're talking about it and, and it's not just us who are talking about it, but it's being talked about all over the place. And how many of you know, when, when the body of Christ begins talking about something, God, God must be up to something. So it's a pertinent topic, and I think we need to know a little bit about it. And so, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. The title today is, Revival? Really? Really? And I want to read it out of Habakkuk chapter 3, just two verses, and let's go. He writes, 
a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. Let's everyone say Shigianoth. And then add a hallelujah. And you got your prayer language on that one. Amen. We just, isn't that about true? Shigianoth. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Habakkuk writes, O Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Revival, really. Now, I want to take a minute and give you some context to what the prophet Habakkuk was up to, and, and especially this, this unusual word that he uses, the word Shigianoth. Now, the northern kingdom, and we've taught on this before, the northern kingdom oftentimes in Scripture was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Now, at this particular time, the northern kingdom had already fallen, and all that's left is Judah. So if you're talking about the people of God, by Habakkuk's time, the only people that were left were the southern kingdom folks, and that was Judah. The reason Judah was still around, to its credit, is because it had experienced some revivals through its history. The northern kingdom continually thumbed its nose at God, and finally the northern kingdom fell. But the southern kingdom had a few what they called revivalist reformer kings along the way. And these kings brought about revival. They restored the law of God. They restored the worship of the Lord. And they restored some things. And because of that, God extended uh, their life. He extended the longevity of the nation of Judah. In fact, it was extended nearly 150 more years than of their brothers and sisters in the northern kingdom. But as often is the case, generations come and go, and the southern kingdom had reached the place that they too were forgetting the Lord that their fathers had worshipped. And now Habakkuk was called upon to prophesy to Judah, and he was prophesying God's judgment to Judah. And it will come, he says later, by the hands of what we will know as the Neo-Babylonians or what the Bible oftentimes calls the Chaldeans. Judah doesn't know it, but while Habakkuk is prophesying, this, this is the point that I felt like the Lord spoke to me about. Judah doesn't know it as they're listening to Habakkuk, but Judah is only about 20 years away from collapse. They don't know it though. We know it, but they don't know it. 20 years that everything that they would know, that everything they would experience as normal, that everything that was just the way it had always been was about ready to collapse and be destroyed. And here in chapter 3, the prophet begins to cry out for mercy. He cries out and he begins to say, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years in wrath. Remember mercy. And then he uses this odd Hebrew word, Shigianoth. I don't know that you'll ever use Shigianoth in your normal interaction and speech, but Shigianoth is actually a plural word. There's, you know, I, I, I don't know Hebrew. I, I wasn't trained in Hebrew. Uh, I, I, know, I know Greek. I'm fluent in the Greek. But I don't know Hebrew, so I don't know what the singular version of Shigianoth may be. But, but that word is plural. And um, it's indicating 
what Habakkuk was doing. In fact, it was indicating something that he was doing multiple times in multiple ways because it was plural. Plural doesn't mean he did it once. It means he was doing it over and over again. And the word actually means a poem or a song or a lament presented with strong emotion or strong passion. In other words, when you read Habakkuk chapter 3, it's just not something that's just written sort of standard and without any sort of emotion to it, but we're talking that Habakkuk had incredible passion attached to what he was beginning to say. In fact, the verb, as I was studying it, is actually derived from the concept, if you follow its etymology, that means someone who's reeling around because of drinking. That's what that word chigginoff means. It literally means, in other words, if you remember back to your old days, because I believe it's back to your old days, but if you go back to your old days when you went to the bar and your buddy got slosh drunk and you know he'd kind of be reeling around and he'd get real loud, he was chigginoffing. That's the picture. A drunk man singing with all the gusto imaginable. And I thought to myself as I was studying that, that maybe it was the prophetic picture of Pentecost when the disciples appeared drunk and they spoke in languages that no one had ever heard before. And yet God was in the middle of all of those things. There was another who defined it as a song that was presented under impassioned imagination or vision. What that means is, is that Habakkuk was crying out for revival He was singing for revival. He was weeping for revival. He was emotional about revival in the most intense way possible. I suspect he had envisioned both the possibility of the judgment as well as the need for revival. And his request is that God would revive this work, his work, in the midst of the years. But interestingly, Judah never paid attention. Because they were just doing life like they always did it. It had been 150 years before they'd seen anything that they could even begin to connect a dot with with regards to judgment with their brothers, their sisters in the northern kingdom. No, they were just doing life. They were shopping and they were working and they were playing. And of course, they'd do the religion thing and they were getting their kids to school and they were making their summer plans and they were paying their bills and they're just doing life. They were just doing what people were doing the way they do it, but they never understood that at the moment Habakkuk began to cry out, they were 20 years away from their whole world about ready to get rocked. So Habakkuk's crying out. He looks crazy. He's, he's full of this emotion. They're thinking, why are you getting so worked up about all of this? I mean, as it is, it shall always be. You seem way, way too exercised, way too impassioned about all of this. And so Habakkuk, as he begins to prophesy and preach and pray, he seems absolutely irrelevant. Here's a guy that's just, he's just kind of crazy. I mean, we love Habakkuk. I mean, Habakkuk's a good guy. But he's not very relevant. And they never understood that his prophecy, his preaching, and his praying were more relevant than they could ever imagine. I want you to be reminded of this, that God is merciful. There comes a moment that his patience runs out. He's long-suffering, but he's not eternally suffering. A nation, a people... Even an individual cannot disregard him forever. 
and expect to endure. I have often wondered how much more time does America have? I don't know if that thought ever crosses your mind. It does mine. No democratic republic has lasted as long as America has already lasted in the whole of human history. We have now gone beyond any other democracy, any other republic. We have now lived longer than any other one in the history of the world. And some days I think we may be on borrowed time. Have you ever wondered when our 20-year warning will come? You ever think, I don't know, and I'm not saying this is it. I don't know. I mean, Habakkuk didn't know. The people didn't know. I don't know. But have you ever wondered when the 20-year clock starts ticking? I'm not going to claim a, a Habakkuk anointing, but I do believe that God is stirring His people to cry out for revival. I believe that may be the order of the Lord. And who knows? Maybe those that have been sharing about revival, maybe they are hearing a word from the Lord. Maybe when Pastor Robert comes and he shares at intercession time and he talks about revival, maybe he really has heard from the Lord. Maybe when Pastor Brad sings the songs and we sing the songs of, of preparing ourselves and cleansing ourselves and getting ourselves ready, maybe he really has heard from the Lord. And maybe, just maybe, I know it's hard to believe, maybe even Pastor heard from God. Maybe there are others who will cry out too. But if we're going to cry out, then we probably need to know what it is we're crying out for. So let's talk about revival. Let me define revival. If we're crying out for something passionately, it'd be good to know what exactly that something may be. Why would it be important? Should I even bother myself with it? I'm not sure you can cry out or hunger, thirst for that which you don't completely understand. I asked several weeks ago, I was on Facebook several weeks ago, and I just, I just put down the phrase, define revival, go. And it was interesting to watch as people began to punch in on the thread below how they would define revival. Now, it was interesting that I don't know that any of them were really wrong, and, and, and I think all of it was certainly on target, but it was fascinating to see that there was not one constant definition. Everybody sort of threw in in the mix kind of what they perceived or thought or how they would define it. And so, you know me, I'm sort of this precision freak. So I decided that I was going to just try my best. And I'm not saying this is the last definition. I am saying that it's the one that I, I began to try to figure out as to what revival is. Let's just kind of define it. And I put it on the screen this way. Revival, if you took it out of the Latin, means to live again. To rekindle into flame a spark nearly extinguished. If you went to the dictionary, the dictionary would say something like this. It would say an improvement in the condition or strength of something. A recovery, a rally, an upturn, an upswing, a comeback, a restoration, a rejuvenation. An instance of something becoming important again. I thought that was fascinating. A highly emotional evangelistic meeting or series of meetings. I found that in the dictionary as well. That last definition is the one we grew up with 
in the Church of the Nazarene that Trace and I sort of got started in. You would literally set aside a week uh, sometime during the year in the church calendar and you'd bring in a special speaker, special singer, and you'd use the week to focus on spiritually getting tuned up again and invigorated. And, and oftentimes good things would happen. Sometimes peripheral people were reconnected. And generally the hope was that the church would be uh, revived in its fervor. They would have a week-long set of meetings, and we called them revival meetings. And there's nothing wrong with special meetings like that. In fact, Charles Finney, if you want to know where they came from, Charles Finney was the one who made the protracted, planned revival meeting popular because he believed that if you created the right environment and you cultivated the right atmospheres, you could literally beget revival and you could renew spiritual passion. And he was, to some extent, successful at that. But in other ways, his theology of the freedom of man's will almost made God obligated to do something if we just presented the right template, which we eventually found out. Because there will be churches to this very day that will hold protracted meetings that they call revival meetings. But revival meetings don't necessarily mean revival will come. You can't leverage God into a revival. I put this on the screen and it may be the most important thing you can write down or remember and it's this. Revival is primarily God's business. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities. But revival in its truest sense is God's business. We can encourage it. We can pray for it. We prepare for it. We could set aside times and hopes of it. But at the end of the day, revival is up to God. And God alone. We can excite the troops. We can encourage the saints. We can have services where we whoop up the believers. We can have awesome services. But true revival is sovereign. You cannot schedule it. You cannot control it. In fact, I'll be honest with you. It rarely arrives according to your schedule. And it probably won't fit into how most of us have scheduled our lives. There's an unpredictability to revival. It can mess up your order of service. It will torpedo your programs. It is rarely convenient. It will undoubtedly stretch you spiritually and in the natural. Revival is when God comes in and He says, I'm in charge and you got to get with my program now. Now, revival should not be confused with an awakening. Now, an awakening is, is, is an equally important concept and they look oftentimes very much alike. But there is a profound difference between the two. An awakening is when dead people are made alive unto Christ. I'll say that again. An awakening is when dead people are made alive unto Christ. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. And God regenerates and makes them alive unto Him. You are dead before you're made alive in Christ Jesus. You don't revive a dead person. You revive a dying person. There's a profound difference. Revival brings people back to the place which they should have always been. Oh my. Revival brings people back to the place which they should have always been. Now, I recognize that everybody has a different story about Jesus coming into their life. Every one of us are unique. Every one of us has a different story. I've told stories of different people, historical figures, and 
and their testimonies as to how conversion took place in their life. Hear me when I say this. Everybody has a unique and different story. We will never have the same stories. We cannot pigeonhole everyone into the same story or experience. What happened to me may not have happened to you, and what happened to you may not have happened to me, and God just works uniquely with all of us. However, saying that, it is not unreasonable to think that when people are born again, that those first hours, maybe days, weeks, maybe even years, have a certain passion and exhilaration to them. When you're born again, you are dead and made alive. And as often is the case, there's this, there's this sense of passion that comes with it. There's a sense of commitment that comes with it. You're born again. I remember I was born again and I was going to college and I worked, obviously, full time, went to school. But I knew you had to be faithful. But I longed for Sundays. I couldn't wait for Sundays to get here. I couldn't wait for special services or prayer meetings. There was this zeal that, that I hadn't created inside of myself because before, before I was born again, I didn't want to go to church and I wasn't wanting to be at prayer meeting and you weren't going to get me to the youth group and you weren't going to get me to do any of this stuff. But it was the zeal of the Lord of hosts inside of me that just ignited when I was born again. But you walk with the Lord and I have now for 39 years. There are moments when you begin to walk with the Lord that, that, it, that, that, that intensity just doesn't stay. Maybe it ought to stay. Uh, maybe it's, it's natural for it to wane or to go forward. I, I'm not even here to explain it except to say that there are moments a revival needs to come to us that restores that zeal again in the people of God. This is going to sound so crazy, and, and it was crazy. Man, I, I remember when we went out and burned rock and roll cassette tapes. I had hundreds of dollars. You chugging, you burn a few tapes in your day, Robert? I burned, I burned, I burned cassette tapes and records. Rock and roll. So I know it sounds crazy. I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Why would you do that? Because there was this zeal that just arose in you. And again, I'm not saying that, that burning, you know, I don't even know what we'd burn today. I guess we'd have to burn our phones if we did that today. I don't even know what we'd burn today. And I'm not saying that it's, that it's wrong. I'm just saying, though, I can remember those fervent, passionate, zealous moments where you said, I want to be everything I can be for Jesus. That's revival. Revival is when that's restored to His people. Where all of a sudden, it... Nothing else matters. You're just consumed for him. I just want to share with you as we go this month talking about revival. I want to just give you five features of revival. I think it'll just help us. It'll help prepare us. If God sends revival, if it's his choice to send it, we should be prepared for it. And so uh, I want to give you these features. It's interesting. Historians recognize the reality of revivals and their influence upon American culture. Right now, even though America in as desperate a place as America is, it's interesting that revivals that have taken place through the history of our country still have various impacts to this very day. And historians recognize that. Now, in my opinion, the last genuine revival of national note, this is just my opinion, others may disagree, this is just my opinion, happened when there was the outpouring in Pensacola. That lasted for several years through the mid-1990s. 
And I believe that there were some features of that revival that were significantly uh, uh, as such that you could point to the hand of God. I understand, and we'll get there in just a moment, that revival ha- can have things surrounding it that are, look pretty wild and bizarre. I'm not getting to that yet. I'm just saying that there were, uh, someone measured several hundred thousands of people that gave their heart to Jesus Christ at the Pensacola Assembly of God. Now, hundreds of thousands of people. That, that sort of indicates a revival. Now, every revival, again, has controversial aspects. Every revival in history has had controversy surrounding it. The sad fact is that in the midst of a genuine move of the Spirit, there can be an equally prominent move of the flesh. And I'm not suggesting that that should be encouraged. I'm not suggesting that it's even right or fostered. I'm just suggesting that it's a reality. And the challenging part of shepherding and the challenging part of participating in revival is distinguishing between God stretching your self-inflicted boundaries of His operation against what is the flesh simply going crazy. And you may have heard the old saying that it's better to have a little wildfire than no fire. And while that has a point to be made, at the same time, there's not virtue in fostering a three-ring circus in the name of revival either. So for me, uh, I've always, as I prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, send revival, I'll do my best. If you send it within our midst, I'll shepherd it as best I know how. But help us, Lord, because nothing, nothing is helpful if it becomes a three-ring circus, but at the same time, nothing's helpful if it's just put under the thumb of control. There has to be a genuine, sincere desire for the real deal and not a fabricated counterfeit. And so I'm going to give you five features of revival that might distinguish the work of God if indeed He's stirring this way amongst us. Number one is this. A manifestation of power. This may come as a surprise to you, but genuine revival is not initially noted by an outbreak of healing or signs and wonders. Those elements may appear, but honestly, the power of God is manifested in the depth of repentance, the transparency of God's people, the hunger to be cleansed deeply. It is hallmarked by the effects of preaching the Word, that you can preach the Word, and people just respond to it. God works through it, and by virtue of the power of God's Word, people want to be right with God. In a genuine revival, you'll hear stories of people crying out in repentance, people that will refuse to leave the sanctuary, folks that are literally pinned to their seat or pinned to the ground by the presence of God. The Cambridge Revival of 1801 saw 20,000 people. Now, think about this. We have churches now that run 20,000 people, so that number isn't that big of a number to us anymore. But in 1801, 20,000 people would have represented 10% of the state of Kentucky. Imagine 10% of the state of Kentucky traveling to an area little different than a forest clearing. There were no cabins. There were no, you know... Hampton Inns, there were no Cracker Barrels. This is 1801, and 20,000 people go to this forested clearing to hear preaching. They had no 
sound system. And so they would literally put pastors on tree stumps at different places all through this large cleared area in a forest. And they'd all be preaching, I suppose, different messages. And, and revival was in the midst and people, people were being revived on that con- Kentucky plain in the forest right there. There was a manifestation of the power of God through that. Was there unusual signs and wonders? Yes, they did come up in that meeting, but that wasn't where the power was. The power lied that His Word went forth and people, people were confronted with God Himself. So, a manifestation of power. Number two is this. A renewal of doctrinal importance. Now, now I started just looking into all of this and, and to me that point almost seems strange. Revival has so many experiential aspects that one would wonder why doctrine would even be considered. Revival, as messy as it may appear on occasion, is really God moving to put things back in His order. You realize that's what's going on. He's reviving us back to His standard, to His understanding, to His orders. And it can be messy because God's just, He's clearing. And sometimes I think God just clears clears the table and says, I'm going to put it in order again. Revival is the renewal of the heart. The heart then wants to know about God. I want to know about His ways. I want to know His plans, His purposes, how He works, what He expects, what's important, what we prioritize. It's just not something I can self-generate and say, well, I think this is what God's like. No, 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 that's not revival. That's just you. Revival is God doing something in your heart that goes to His Word and says, what does He say we should do? I want to do it His way. That is doctrine. Do you know that most major revivals in history resulted in schools and colleges being built? Do you know Harvard and Princeton were built out of revival? Now, you wouldn't, you, they're the farthest thing from revival today. But they were built out of revivals. Revival releases the hunger of God in people to be trained for His service. It's interesting that most heresies and cults spring up around a revival. If you'll see the dates of when cults and certain heresies spring up, it's in the midst of a move of God. Why is that? It's because the devil always attempts to corrupt and counterfeit the emphasis of what God is trying to do. The enemy will show up and try to detour everybody from the real work of God that's going on in the revival. So there's this renewal of doctrine. Number three. Another feature is personal godliness and a pursuit of holiness. People who experience a revival understand at the core of the revival is the desire for righteousness and holiness. It's not unusual. In fact, it's almost a hallmark that you will see in a revival that those believers that are in a backslidden condition will be brought back and renewed and rededicated in their walk. There's something that spiritually happens inside people that is drawn to be more like the Master. Revival is the renewal for pursuing Christ-likeness. Why has God come? Has God come just for us to be healed or for us to have an experience or for us to laugh and receive the joy of the Lord? I mean, is this the reason God has come? No, God has come in order that we might become inflamed with the desire to be more like Him. There's something inside of us that wants to be sanctified. 
We don't mind consecrating our lives. If you're in the middle of a revival and someone says, let's give it all up and go all out for Jesus, there's something in you that says, yes, that's me. We will joyfully pick up our crosses. We will willingly die to ourselves. That's what revival looks like when you're not in revival and you preach a consecrating message or you preach a message to die to yourself. Everyone looks and goes, that's just too hard for me. I ain't going to do that. You'll never get me to If that's what it means to follow God, I'm not doing this thing because it's just too hard. When you have revival, you have people standing up and saying, sign me up. Revival is not just barking and howling and getting slain in the spirit and seeing gold dust and feathers and all these manifestations. And I'm not even being critical of it. I'm just simply saying if there's no repentance, then I'm not sure God's in it. If that feather doesn't get you to repentance, then that feather was nothing more than a feather. If the gold dust doesn't get you to put your face in the carpet and say, oh God, have mercy upon me, then that gold dust does nothing but maybe... Increase your net worth. Repentance is the feature of revival. Deep and profound conviction over the state of our souls. Number four. The feature of revival is that it spiritually impacts a region. If you have time, go to YouTube and type in the Asbury Revival. Asbury Revival. Revival. There are several YouTube videos that have testimonies that you will hear about this 1970 revival that took place. You can hear what the student said, what the president said. It's interesting that one of the main features in my mind as I was listening again, I read the book that came out of the revival that was called One Divine Moment. I read that years ago. But one of the features as you're listening to these YouTube videos was that, was that, that revival at Asbury in its intensity lasted about a week. But at the end of the week, they began to send out teams of students two by two to different churches located all over the area. They started close by in Indiana, Illinois. Some went to Kansas. Some went to Tennessee. And everywhere the kids that had experienced revival, all they did was they would stand up in church. And I, and, and I know several pastors. They're aged now, but they had had those kids come. All they did was give really a testimony, and there wasn't much drama to it. They just stood up and gave a, probably a five to maybe ten minute testimony of the revival, and they sat down, and almost without fail, something happened in those churches and in those congregations, and revival started there. See, God wants to impact a region. It touches the city. It touches the community. It'll touch news reporters. It'll literally spread like wildfire. Robert mentioned it at prayer time. It changes the complexion of the landscape. I mean, you know, right now, we'll hold Bible studies in bars. And I get, that's fine. I, you know my position on drinking is, you know, hey, I understand it isn't going to send you to hell. You know, if, if, that's, if you're doing that in moderation, you know, the Bible doesn't prohibit it. But I'm telling you, it's interesting to me how we have churches that will promote their Bible studies in bars, but when revival comes historically, bars close. I think that's interesting. I guess their Bible study would close then. Something to think about anyway, isn't it? The president of Asbury testified that when it happened, he was out of town in Canada, and he had to call back to find out what was going on. And he said that when he called back, he said as he talked with the dean... 
He said it was as if God was beginning to fill the phone booth that he was in in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. It was as if God was moving through the very phone line in order to begin to deal with him. And he said that as he finally got back to town and as he was driving into town where the college was located, he said he could sense the weightiness of God's presence as he moved across the city limits and moved towards the college campus. That, my friend, <laughs> that's revival. And then finally, number five, and then I'll tell you a little bit about Anson Street. Another feature is it just starts spontaneously and it usually lasts for a notable length of time. Revival, revival is something people can hunger for, but you just can't start it on your own. You just can't say, well, we're going to have revival tomorrow. You can pursue it. You can cultivate it. You can set aside some times to help focus on it, foster it, pray about it. But revival starts on God's time. It usually has a spontaneous start. It lasts for as long as he intends for it to last. Some revivals are days, some are weeks. Some have been known to last years. But the key is that God determines these things in order for us to be reminded that we're not in charge of such sovereign things. It's important to note that almost without fail, prayer meetings and intercession are a part of the revival coming. God is in charge of revival, but he has linked his outpouring, interestingly, to the people praying. And I'll end with this. Some of you already know, you know, if you, if you are around Dot, I know Dot knows Glover because she knows the history of this area well. Some of you others I'm sure may know or have heard me mention it before that, that Charleston in 1857 had, had a revival that took place down on Anson Street. It was actually at that time the Anson Street Presbyterian Church. It opened in 1850. It was primarily for the black parishioners of the Presbyterian Church, black Presbyterians. Now, many of you know that, that revival has oftentimes seemed to be in God's agenda. He, he sent George Whitfield here. Of course, what did Charleston do with George Whitfield? We threw him in jail for three days until finally he was bailed out of jail and run out of town off to John's Island. Charles Wesley came to Charleston along with his brother, and he said that in Charleston, it was one of the worst places that he ever saw in America with regards to the treatment of the slaves. He wrote that in his journal. Some of you may know that the famous Baptist preacher R.G. Lee, who preached the sermon Payday Someday, he actually pastored down at Citadel Square Baptist Church. I mean, there have been some really notable people that have come through Charleston preaching the Word of God, trying to bring Charleston and even this nation back to God. But in 1857, there was a bank panic. It was almost like a depression that took place. The rich became broke overnight, and, and all of a sudden there was a panic that took place. And all these secular conditions caused people's hearts to cry out. People who were once rich lost their money. People were thrown into the streets. It was a great panic that took place all across America that swept away all the speculative wealth. Thousands of merchants were forced to the wall as banks failed. Railroads went into bankruptcy. Factories, factories were shut down and numbers were thrown out of employment. One person said in New York City alone, they would have 30,000 men in the downtown area idle looking for jobs. In October of 1857 though, the hearts of the people had begun to get weaned from 
their monies and this uncertain gain. And there was a hunger that began to develop apparently. Until finally here in Charleston, South Carolina, at the Anson Street Presbyterian Mission that was pastored by a man made by the name of John Garadu. He was a white pastor who was preaching to mostly a black congregation, although at that particular time before the Civil War, it was still known that whites and blacks would worship together. The animosities and the offenses of the Civil War hadn't entered into people's hearts yet. This was prior to the Civil War. And you could still find moments when the races would come together and they would worship together. And that was what was taking place at the Anson Street Mission. One night there were 48 black members and 12 white members. And they began a prayer meeting petitioning God to send an awakening, waiting for an outpouring of the Spirit. And one evening while leading in prayer, Pastor Garrido felt, as he will write down himself, a surge of electricity that went into my head and went through my whole entire body. And he looked at the congregation of some 60 people and he said, the Holy Spirit has come. He said, we'll begin preaching tomorrow evening. He was ready to dismiss them. In fact, he said they could go, but nobody left. And so he immediately began exhorting them to accept the gospel. And by the time he was able to redismiss the congregation, it was midnight. Every night for the next eight weeks, he preached. I'll say that again. Every night for the next eight weeks, he preached on sin, repentance, faith, justification, regeneration to over 1,500 to 2,000 people that would gather around that mission. Many whites as well as blacks were converted they later joined various churches all through the city. In fact, every church in the city of Charleston began to grow. There was one church in Beaufort, South Carolina, it is reported, received 400 converts in three days. There are anecdotal stories that speak of Jeremiah Lanfear visiting Charleston to experience the 1857 outpouring. He returned to New York and he began prayer meetings at the Fulton Street location, which historians claim was where the start of the Third Great Awakening occurred. But we don't realize that the Third Great Awakening didn't start in Fulton Street in New York. God landed in Charleston, South Carolina. And the Awakening of 1857 conservatively saw over one million new converts along the East Coast. Abolitionism sprung out of this revival. Now the original church, if you were to go down there, it actually burned to the ground except for the brick part that's in the back. You can see the red brick of the original church. The congregation eventually moved over to Meeting Street in Calhoun. It became Zion Presbyterian Church. And then to Cannon Street to become the Zion Olivet Church. Gerardo, when the Civil War started, became a chaplain in the Civil War. But once the war was over... He was invited back to pastor the predominantly black church. Isn't that an amazing thing? After the Civil War, this white pastor was invited by this black congregation to come back and pastor. That says something about the power of revival. And Gerardo came in and he began to teach this black, predominantly black congregation the hymns of the church. They didn't realize, in fact, he came under some criticism because what he was doing was he was actually teaching his black congregants to be able to read through the singing of hymns. And of course, in those days, that was not the thing 
that was to be done. And yet Gerardo went against the grain of the culture and he taught his people how to read by singing hymns. And he was on the cutting edge of laying hands. He had people called to the ministry and this white pastor would lay his hands on black men and ordain them to the ministry. That's, that's revival. And that's where really the start of the Third Great Awakening began. Here in our own beloved city, Charleston, South Carolina. Now, I can't make it happen, but I sure enough would love to participate in a revival. And I guess we're just preaching about it in order perhaps in the next four weeks, something inside of your heart will say, you know, I'd like to be a part of a revival too. Maybe... Maybe God might choose us.